Who is the first horseman in Revelation 6? Why is he carrying a bow, but no arrows? And nobody knows who the Antichrist will be, but does Satan himself even know? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a pastor, and I am not Jesus. I just want to make that abundantly clear today, because not everybody is going to do that for you. There is someone coming who actually does want you to think that he is Jesus. There is someone who wants you to think that he is Jesus returning in the flesh. He will be the answer to the world's problems, or at least thought to be. At first, he won't present himself as a savior type of figure, but that's what the rest of the world will say. They'll build him up as a great unifier, the most clever politician, the visionary who will lead us into a brave new world. And he'll accept the praise and he'll even start to request worship as things get worse in the world. Eventually, he'll demand worship. It'll get to a point that he even claims to be God himself. But it's all going to be a case of mistaken identity. And we're going to correct that misconception today as we enter into the book of Revelation for a few episodes here on the podcast. So for the next couple of months, I would like to cover the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we're going to alternate between these and the Ezekiel episodes. So it's going to take us a few months to get through all four. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, that's a pop culture name. I'm not sure who first called them that. But it actually originates from Revelation 6. This is the chapter where the seven-year tribulation kicks off. From Revelation 6 through Revelation 19, the Bible is describing the seven years of calamity that come at the end of the world, a.k.a. the apocalypse. In fact, the word revelation actually is, in the Greek, it's apocalypsis. And so during that tribulation period, there's going to be a series of judgments upon the earth. Mainly, these are three sets of seven judgments each. So the first set is called the seal judgments. The second set are the trumpet judgments. The third set are the bowl judgments. And that's 21 judgments total. 21 things that God does to bring about the end of the world over this seven-year period. So as I already said, it kicks off with the four horsemen. And, And so for those judgments in the first set, which is the seal judgments, the first four judgments... Each one, they are unleashing a horseman upon the earth, and and this is symbolism. Each horseman symbolizes a particular type of calamity that the world is going to face early on in the tribulation. So we're going to talk about each of those horsemen and what they bring to the table. That's what each of these four episodes are going to do. And so today is going to be the white horse, okay, of the four horsemen, of the four horses and horsemen. The, the, The first one is a white horse, and this is kind of the only one that people tend to argue over who it is. Um, Some say that he is Christ. Others will say he is the Antichrist. (laughs) So quite a quite a disparity there. But it kind of is one or the other. And even among Christians, uh, there's a lot of disagreement about who this is, if if it actually is Jesus or if it's the Antichrist. Johnny Cash wrote a song about this horseman, and Johnny Cash took the position that this was Jesus. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw 
and behold, a white horse. There's a man going round taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. Well, I hate to disagree with the man in black about the man in white, but I don't agree that this is Jesus right here. And and I think that's kind of the point. I think that this guy is an imposter. He's meant to make people think that he's Jesus when it's actually not. Uh, I believe this is the Antichrist himself, as we'll read, as I'll make a case for that today. And and so that makes it a bit ironic to me that so many Christians can't even settle on, on whether he's the first horseman of Revelation 6. So some read these verses and they think it's talking about Jesus himself. After all, Jesus does come in at the end of Revelation riding on a white horse. So if someone else is on a white horse, you know, it could make you think, oh, that must be Jesus too. Other people will say, this is a writer who's pretending to be Jesus. And so the confusion there, that's actually kind of the point. Let's read the verses today. Uh, and this is where we'll spend all of today is when we're t- be talking about these verses and breaking them down. So I'm going to read the first two verses of Revelation 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. This is how the tribulation kicks off. It it actually does not start with the rapture. Now, I believe the rapture happens before the tribulation, but the rapture itself, that is not what starts the seven-year countdown on the end of the world. Now, how much time is there between the rapture and the start of the tribulation? We really have no idea. Um, You know, it could be days, it could be weeks, could even be months. Uh, I mean, it could be years, but I doubt that it's years. Uh, But anyway, what I'm saying is we don't actually know. The thing that starts the seven years of tribulation is this revealing of the Antichrist. So it's not the rapture. It's not an earthquake or a blood moon. It's the Antichrist coming on the scene. So here's the elements of those verses that we read. And and this this is what we're going to analyze on today's show. A voice like thunder, the white horse, a rider, a bow, a crown, and that he rode out as a conqueror. So we'll start with there with a voice like thunder. I just want to make a quick interpretive comment here, something that helps you all through the book of Revelation, where it says there is a voice like thunder. Because uh, we're going to see this with all of the horsemen. Each of them are introduced by a voice of a different angelic being um, that the Bible calls a living creature. I don't think these are technically angels, even though I'm calling it an angelic being. Uh, these are more similar to the cherubim that we saw in Ezekiel 1, which are technically not angels. So we will get into all that sometime, but uh, very soon in Ezekiel, we'll be getting back into that issue. So what are the what are these? These are the throne guardians up in heaven, where it says the living creatures. And they were talked about earlier in Revelation, chapters 4 and 5. These guys are always going around the throne of God, uh, worshiping God, basically. And um, as as the judgments start to pour out on the earth, the four living creatures, each each one is saying, come as the judgments start to pour out. Uh, so the interpretive comment I wanted to make here is this. It said he had a voice like thunder. Some translations will say, as it were, 
And so that means it's not literally thunder. It's something similar to thunder. It means something loud and scary or boisterous might be a good word. Like whenever we say someone spoke with a thundering voice. And you got to remember this as you read Revelation, because a lot of people have trouble with the symbolism of the book. There is a lot of symbolism, but just FYI, when you read something saying like thunder, okay, or like a trumpet, it doesn't mean a literal trumpet is popping out and talking or whatever. It means the voice has something similar in characteristics to that thing. So we need to know that um, when we're reading the Bible. We already know this whenever we're talking to someone in person. You know, if I said someone had hair like a tumbleweed, you know that I mean they had messy or tangled hair, (laughs) not that an actual tumbleweed was growing out of their head. You would interpret my meaning just fine. But some people read the book of Revelation and they get all weird about it. And they're like, well, I don't know what this means. You know, so if it says a voice like thunder, for example, you know, it's not actually thunder. It's talking about the characteristics of that voice. So we just need to apply that same interpretive principle whenever we read the Bible. Um, Of course, one of the things that's hard about Revelation is whenever it doesn't say like, and then you got to figure out, okay, is this, is this symbolism or is this literal? Because sometimes Revelation can kind of surprise you with that. Um, So anyway, just FYI, when you read the word like, or some translations, they'll say as it were, it means, it means similar in quality. Okay. Um, Let's talk about a horse and his rider, the white horse and his rider. And you read about the four horses in this chapter, and they're, they're each one a different color. Um, The white horse is what I'm going to say today is the Antichrist. Uh, and it's, it's a little weird because white is a symbol of purity in the Bible. It's not really hard to understand why. Um, it's a color of cleanliness. And so that's probably the one reason that, the number one reason that most people associate this horse with Jesus. But I just want to point out, if this is Jesus, he keeps some bad company. Because the other three horses and horsemen, <laughs> they're some pretty bad dudes. So I believe that this Antichrist here, um, the white horse figure, I believe that he's white because he's coming as a savior or as a messianic figure. He's going to arrive on the scene. He's going to be thought of as the answer to the world's problems. All right, so note that the figure on the white horse, note that he's being released as a judgment on the world, which also doesn't sound much like Jesus. (laughs) You know, I mean, other than the fact that when he comes, he will judge the world. But um, that's going to be, that's going to all be wrapped up pretty quickly later on in Revelation. So I believe this first figure is released as a judgment. His mere presence is a judgment. The rider on the white horse represents the Antichrist himself. And the word Antichrist, that's a name that we often use for him. And I think it's a good name. It's not a name that Revelation itself ever uses. Uh, It comes from 1 John and 2 John, which was also written by John who wrote Revelation. Um, So Antichrist, that's a term that John uses for someone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. So anyone can be an antichrist if they emphatically deny Jesus. I'm not just going to call every single non-Christian an antichrist, but if it's someone who just emphatically, clearly denies Jesus as the son of God or as a savior that he died and rose again, John calls that person an antichrist. Let me read 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming, and now is in the world already. So Antichrist is kind of a general term that John uses, and John says the spirit of the Antichrist is already in the world. Uh, However, we also tend to use that word, I would say most commonly, 
to refer to one end times figure, which, which is talked about a lot in Revelation, but Revelation doesn't actually use that word. It calls him typically the beast. And he has many other names in the Bible. He's called the man of sin, the lawless one, the son of perdition, the little horn, the idle shepherd, the prince that shall come. But I really do like the term Antichrist because it captures so well what his purpose is. You know, anti typically means against. So if you're anti something, it means you are against that thing. Um, like you might be a vegan. So if, in, or say you eat like an exclusively vegetarian diet. Well, you, we could say then that you are anti meat. It means you don't just like vegetables. You despise the idea of eating animals or eating meat, typically speaking. Uh, my wife, she is anti-crocs, okay? Not speaking about crocodiles, I'm talking about the shoes that, that some people wear. Um, when I say my wife is anti-crocs, I'm not saying she, that she just doesn't, doesn't wear crocs. She actively campaigns against the wearing of crocs by anyone in society. So don't wear crocs around my wife unless you're, unless you're picking a fight, okay? <laughs> and I'm only half joking there, but you have been warned. Anyway, back to what I was saying. Anti means against. And the Antichrist is certainly against Christ, Christ, but anti can have a secondary meaning too, and that applies also very well to this horse rider. Anti can also mean instead of. So the Antichrist is really trying to be instead of Christ. As we said, he's going to seem almost messianic in his charisma, in his leadership, in his ability to fix the world's problems. And over time, he's even going to be, he's going to want to be worshipped as God. He'll, he'll have a religious administrator known as the false prophet. He'll, he'll be in kind of a satanic trinity where the devil corresponds to God. Uh, it kind of works like this in the satanic trinity of the Antichrist. Um, the devil is going to correspond to God the Father, the false prophet, to the Holy Spirit. And the Antichrist will kind of set himself up as the son. So he wants it to be himself instead of Christ. That's another way that Antichrist has, has meaning there. By the way, I would point out that this world has really been primed for a Christ-like messianic figure to appear. If you look at all the religions of the world, it's really interesting. They all have some kind of expectation of a messianic figure to come around at the end of the world. And think about it. The devil knows that the end times are coming. Okay, he kind of knows the basics there of what the Bible says. He knows the Bible very well. So he wants people to follow him instead of God during the end times. And, and Satan is also the creator of all these false religions around the world. So of course, he's already set them up. He sprinkled deception into their end times expectations, um, all, obviously. So the Muslims, they're looking for what's called the 12th Imam. And an Imam in, in the Muslim religion is an exemplary human being. That, that means someone who is perfect or near perfect. And the Muslims believe that 11 have already come and died. So they're currently waiting for the 12th, the 12th and final imam to appear. They call him Muhammad Hassan al-Badi. They believe that he's going to usher in the end of the world whenever he arrives. And I'm sure the Antichrist could very well meet their expectations and, and even cause the Muslim world to follow after him. That's 2 billion people right there. The Buddhists, they believe that there is a new Buddha coming someday. The Catholics, um, I'm not saying all Catholics are not saved, but I, I do have a lot of problems with the Catholic branch of Christianity. I, you know, I, I, I'm concerned that a lot of them are not saved. I'm quite concerned 
that so that when I say the Antichrist, the, so when I say the Catholics don't believe in a rapture, um, what they actually do believe is the truth that Jesus is going to come again. But the, but I'm really concerned that the fact that they don't really believe the same about end times theology that opens the door for a lot of them to be deceived by the Antichrist whenever he appears. That many of the the Catholics might actually believe that the Antichrist is G- Jesus. Uh, and deception is going to run rampant during these end times, like during those last seven years. A lot of people are going to buy into this idea that the Antichrist is to be worshipped. Um, you know, as you read the book of Revelation, it, he goes pretty far with that. Uh, the Mormons, okay, uh, they believe in a second coming of Christ. But from beliefnet.com, let me read you their version of it. Jesus Christ will return to earth at Jackson County, Missouri, and humans will be assigned to one of three heavenly kingdoms. Though why anyone would want to live there, after having experienced the show me state, is unfathomable. Now, I don't know what BeliefNet's problem is. Um, I just got to take that personally because I'm from Missouri myself. So I don't, I don't always understand why people rag on Missouri a lot. I mean, I quite like it here, but, but some people call Missouri the state of misery. So, um, well, I don't know. For me, there's a lot of places I would rather not live than Missouri but um, but I will say Missouri and Utah, they're home to a lot of Mormons and Mormonism. Um, Utah was the founding place of Mormonism. And Missouri is where they believe Jesus is going to come back to, as we just kind of read in those verses. They, I think they see Independence, Missouri as like the Jerusalem of the Western world, you know, something like that. So when the Antichrist arrives, one thing that I believe he is going to do, he's going to unite a lot of the religions of the world by making all these different religions, like the Buddhists, the Muslims, everybody, believe that he is the prophesied figure who fulfills all of their prophecies. Okay, even the Jews. The Jews are awaiting their Messiah. Because, as you know, those who believe in Judaism, well, they rejected Jesus the first time he came around. So for the past 2,000 years, they've pretty much not budged on that. Like approximately 1% of Jews are saved today. That's That's all. And there's many prophecies about the fact that the Jews will actually believe that the Antichrist is their Messiah when he first comes on the scene. But the bright side is, the Bible says that they will recognize their mistake in the second half of the tribulation. That they're going to come to a realization that he's not the the Messiah, he's an imposter, and this is going to cause them to give Jesus a second look, and then come to salvation. So collectively, the Jewish people actually will repent, and they're going to be saved in the second half of the tribulation, but, but that's also going to come at a great cost because the Antichrist is going to try to wipe out all the Jews during that period. He will um, the, the, he will indeed kill a lot of them. He will kill most of them, according to the book of Zechariah. But collectively, the ones who survive are going to turn back to Jesus. And, and Jesus has said, he will not return until the Jews turn to him. And Satan knows that. So Satan knows that he can try to prevent Jesus' return by wiping out the Jewish people. And that has been his plan all along. If he can wipe out the Jewish people, he can stop Jesus because he could overthrow prophecy. So we know it's not going to work out, but um, but that's Satan's plan because that's, that's kind of all he's got. So in the end times, that's what Satan will attempt to do. And he'll use the Antichrist to try to do it. All right, let's talk about why he has a bow.
I'm going to read verse 2 again. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So the Antichrist has been given a bow and a crown, and let's talk about the bow for a minute. Um, we need to talk about the dog that didn't bark in this verse. If you've ever heard of this detective's trick, it's like, I think it goes back to Sherlock Holmes. Um, they were investigating a crime at some location, and there was a guard dog there, and they knew somehow that while the crime was committed at this place, that the dog never barked. And so as the story goes, Sherlock deduced right away that this must mean that the dog's owner was like the killer or the thief, whoever they were chasing, because if it had been anyone else, the dog would have barked. And so the lack of a dog barking, that gave away who the villain was in the story. And um, that that's just kind of a, an old uh, trick. They'll call it the dog that didn't bark. Sherlock calls it a negative fact. He means it's an argument from silence, uh, which is typically considered a weak argument. But here's where an argument from silence is is very um, where where it's very applicable, where it's very legitimate. It's whenever you would not expect silence. Okay, when the silence is deafening, that's an appropriate time to make an argument from silence. That would be where um, where you have what Sherlock called a negative fact. It's where you would surely, without a doubt expect to see something that is not there. So that's kind of a famous deduction in fiction. People call it the dog that didn't bark. And I like to bring it up here because it can also be helpful in interpreting the Bible. Sometimes you have to ask, what is not barking? Okay, what would you expect to see mentioned that isn't there? And that's where I'm going to mention the bow right here. You almost never see the word bow mentioned by itself, right? You virtually always see the phrase bow and arrows. So the fact that the word bow is mentioned right here and there's no arrows, that's actually kind of significant. It's drawing our attention to something. Like, why would someone just have a bow by itself? Why would it not mention the arrows too? What does a bow by itself mean? Well, I have an answer for you on that. Uh, let's talk about, uh, <laughs> to, to explain what a bow means in the Bible, we're going to talk about another interpretive principle. It's called the law of first mention. And so this is the idea that if you're trying to understand something in the Bible, First, you should look at the place where it's mentioned, like the first time. Look at the place it's first mentioned, and then use that as the basis for how you're going to understand that concept. So one of my favorite examples of this, if I could just mention this here, and then I'll get back to the bow and arrows thing. One of my favorite examples of this, it's the first place that love is mentioned in the Bible. So do you happen to know where love is mentioned in the Bible for the first time? It's in Genesis, I think it's the chapter 22. It's the story where Abraham offers up Isaac as a sacrifice. And I'm sure you know the story. He doesn't actually kill Isaac. God stops him. But God says there, now I know that you truly love me. You've proven it. That's the first place that love is used. So God wants us to understand love in the Bible as a caring devotion. So intense that a father would even offer up his son for it, okay? And that's what makes it so so powerful whenever we talk about how God loves us. The, the purest form of love is the fact that God offered up his son for you. That's just one of those amazing things about the Bible. Um, it doesn't just mention these things randomly, like even when it just talks about love right there in Genesis 22. God was so intricate and detailed about the order in which he mentions things. I believe he's ordered things so that the first time he mentions them, he's often trying to teach us something 
about that word. And so love is an important concept in the Bible, obviously. It's a major, it's a major concept in the Bible. And God is teaching us something about the concept of love the first time he brings it up in the Bible, which was there in Genesis 22. So God does this to help us understand the word. Theologians call this the law of first mention. And let's get back to the bow. Where's the first place that a bow is mentioned in the Bible? That would be Genesis 9. And this is right after the flood. This is where a bow is going to be mentioned, but but arrows are not even going to be mentioned right here. Okay, Noah and his wife are coming off the ark. God promises to never flood the earth ever again. So no future generation will ever experience something like the flood of Noah again. And then here's what it says. This is going to mention a bow. Okay, again, not with arrows, just a bow. In the meaning of the bow in Genesis, this will give us an idea of what a bow means, what it symbolizes in Revelation. So Genesis 9, verses 12 and 13, And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So God's sign of his covenant is a bow. Now, you've heard this said before as the rainbow, and and that's exactly what it is. God made a rainbow, and this was the sign that he would never destroy the earth again, or the world, uh, with the with the flood at least. Okay, and and God calls it here His promise, His covenant. Some translations go a step further; they'll actually say rainbow here, because it is talking about a rainbow. But that's also going a bit overboard because I don't want us to miss what it actually says literally. The original Hebrew just said bow. It's called the it called the rainbow God's bow. Okay, so a bow is a sign of a covenant. Um, I have a friend, he's a Bible prophecy teacher named Chet Morton. He often says that everything that begins in Genesis ends in Revelation, uh, or everything that ends in Revelation began in Genesis. There's so much symmetry or, or parallelism between those books. And a lot of things from the law of first mention, they find their start in Genesis, because that's the first book of the Bible, and um, and and they then they come to fulfillment a lot of times later in Revelation. So one of those things is a bow right here, which means a covenant. So let's go back to Revelation. The Antichrist comes on the scene with a covenant. And this is backed up not just here, but also in the book of Daniel. That's another book of the Bible that teaches a lot about the end times and about the Antichrist. And in Daniel 9, an angel comes to Daniel with a prophecy about the end times. So let me read here what it says. It's in Daniel 9.27, and this is talking about the Antichrist here. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, I've got to break down this line a little bit. Um, there's a lot right there just in that. That was just part of a verse. The he in there, like I said, that's the Antichrist. It said he'll make a strong covenant with many. So once again, a covenant is mentioned in relation to the Antichrist. And whenever it says for one week, what it's talking about there is a week of years. And this is kind of a like a Hebrew thing. Weeks are not always just seven-day periods. They also talk about weeks of years. And I don't I don't have time to get into it all now, but if you study the passage in context, it's clear. If you study it in context, it's not talking about a seven-day period. It's talking about a seven-year period. That's what it means when it talks about weeks in that chapter. So the Antichrist comes in, not only with a covenant between nations, 
but specifically a covenant that lasts seven years. That's that's the seven-year tribulation. So a couple notes on this covenant. Um, some misconceptions that I think people have about this uh, is that a lot of Bible teachers will say that the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel. They often call it a peace treaty with Israel. Now, it certainly might be, but I just want to point out the verse doesn't technically say that. It says a covenant with many. Now, I've often wondered where do Bible teachers get this idea that it's a covenant with Israel or that it, Israel is even one of the many nations that's talked about there. I'm like, is that is that also taken from somewhere else in the Bible? Um, but every time I look at the citations from these Bible teachers, they always go back to Daniel 9.27. And this verse just doesn't say that it's a covenant involving Israel. It doesn't even mention Israel at all. Let me read it again. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice an offering. So it doesn't say Israel. Uh, it, it says many. Now, could Israel be a part of that? Of course they could. Absolutely. They could. And, and it could be a peace treaty. You know, that's all logical. But I just want to point out here, it might have nothing to do with Israel. The treaty or the covenant, it might have nothing to do with peace whatsoever. So we just don't have that information given to us. So I think we just need to be really careful about assuming too much whenever it comes to Bible prophecy. Because if we do that, we could assume wrong. Um, we talked about the dangers of this back in episode four of the podcast, as well as episode 10. Be very careful about making too many assumptions whenever it comes to interpreting Bible prophecy. Or I'd say this, always be careful about separating what we definitely know versus what we're assuming. Because if we're not careful, those assumptions, those guesses, sometimes they can kind of bleed over into what we think is definite. And if those assumptions are wrong, that means like we're going to get off base. We'll think we're going to know what's going to happen whenever we actually don't. Okay, what if the covenant that the Antichrist comes around with, what if it's something to do with the European Union? Or maybe a coalition of China and Russia? You know, what if it actually has nothing at all to do with Israel? Well, that would mean the Antichrist could could be setting up the covenant right before our eyes. We wouldn't even see it because we'd be too busy fixating on peace treaties with Israel. So do I think it could be a peace treaty with Israel and, and some Middle Eastern countries? Well, that seems very plausible to me. Okay, that makes that makes total sense, but we just got to be careful that we're not assuming too much because we don't want to risk missing something important. One more note on the covenant where it says in the ESV, um, it said it's a strong covenant. And I think that's a little bit mistranslated in the ESV. I think a better way to say it would be that the Antichrist strengthens a covenant. Okay, and that's a slight change. Other translations, I think, make this a little clearer. What the Antichrist is actually saying it's not that the Antichrist is going to create a strong covenant. It means that he's going to strengthen or enforce a covenant that's like already on the books. Okay. Now, could he be the one who creates the covenant? Well, he definitely could. But technically, the verse is telling us that he'll be the strengthener or the enforcer of this covenant. So again, let's just be careful not to assume too much. Now, after the verse mentions the seven-year covenant... Uh, this is what it said next. It said, For half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice an offering. Now, what's that referring to? Well, it's talking about half of the seven-year period. So for three and a half years. So basically for the first half, the Antichrist seems like a friend to the Jews and like a friend to the world. 
And a lot of people are drawn to him and follow after him. For the, for, for the most part, anyway. But after three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to show his true colors. He'll turn completely evil. He'll start to wipe out the Jewish people. He will desecrate their temple. That's something that Daniel refers to as the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist will put an end to Judaism, like legally speaking. That's why it says he'll bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And, and then he will desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. And he'll seat himself in it, and he'll declare himself to be God and, and try to exterminate the Jews from there. And so that's why Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 15. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So the great tribulation, it's it's not even the whole seven-year period that the Antichrist is in control. The great tribulation is actually just the last three and a half years that he tries to wipe out all the Jews and truly becomes an evil dictator. And it's during this time period that he'll introduce the mark of the beast and and perhaps even become possessed by Satan himself, uh, as some think. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's literally going to be true, but it's basically going to be true. So he'll really show his true colors. You know, it's, it's actually kind of interesting there. So I mentioned that this at this point then, the Jewish people, the ones who survive, are going to turn back to Jesus. They're going to realize that Jesus actually was the Messiah. So um, it's kind of interesting that the Antichrist, you know, from from the point of the abomination of desolation, he, as the verse said, he puts an end to sacrifice and offering. So he, he tries to put an end to Judaism with his actions. And that actually ends up becoming the, the literal case. He puts an end to Judaism and the Jewish people turn to Jesus, which is the end of Judaism anyway. <laughs> so it kind of, it kind of, it's just kind of funny how that worked out. That just kind of occurred to me there. And one more thing that's kind of funny here. Um, I don't know if funny is the word, but it has to do with a line in Daniel 11. And it says in Daniel 11, I won't go read the verse, but it says that the Antichrist will not have regard for women. Now that could have a couple different meanings. Um, I tend to think actually that it just means the Antichrist, he's going to be so full of himself or so busy running the world that he doesn't really care about having a romantic relationship. And that's a one possible interpretation. Um, but another possible interpretation there is that he's actually gay. And that's a, that's a legitimate interpretation. Whenever you read that he won't have regard for women that, you know, it could make sense to think that. Um, and that's just something, if that was true, if the Antichrist is like openly homosexual. That's just really interesting because for most of human history, that would have seemed kind of far-fetched that like like the whole world would just go follow after a homosexual ruler. Um, that, that would still be kind of hard to believe in some ways because a lot of countries around the world would, would not be okay with that. But, but it's just interesting because every year, the potential for that really grows. Like it would not be surprising at all anymore to see a prominent world leader who is openly gay. Um, as you know, you know, you're going to see this all over the place as we enter into the month of June. 
the the rainbow is the gay pride symbol nowadays. So it's it's an interesting thing that they've chosen right there. The rainbow is their symbol. Perhaps the the bow that the Antichrist comes riding in with in Revelation, it might have a kind of a dual meaning there as the original bow from Genesis, a rainbow. You know, he, the, the Antichrist might coming in <laughs> waving a rainbow flag as well. Wouldn't it surprise me at all? And um, that's 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 the whole story. That's everything I think I, I think I can tell you about the bow. It's a covenant that the Antichrist makes, a covenant of many nations. And so that's why the first horseman, the Antichrist, rides in carrying a bow. Uh, okay, now let's look at the crown he's been given. What is the crown referring to? Well, I think he's given a crown because the Antichrist is literally going to be king of the world. Um, I don't think the symbolism of a crown, I don't think that symbolism is difficult to interpret. He's going to bring together a coalition of many nations. Perhaps I would say right after the rapture, the world is looking for answers. Okay, there's probably like an economic collapse right after the the rapture happens. Uh, Okay, now some people will claim that the world has 2 billion Christians. And they get that number if you add up all the Catholics, all the Orthodox, all the Protestant believers. They say it's 2 billion now, I don't think that number is anywhere near 2 billion because that would be like nearly a third of the world, okay? But let's say 10% of the world went in the rapture, okay? I don't think it's going to be like a third. I don't think it's going to be a fourth of the world. But let's just say it was 10% of the world. Well, that would be enough to trigger an economic collapse, especially in the countries that have like the highest concentration of Christians. All those countries they would be instantly weakened, right? You can't just take like 10 or 20% of a country's population without there being some kind of huge financial effect being felt. So I would imagine, you know, I would imagine this, that all the children go in the rapture. I would imagine that. So there's going to be a lot of fear in the world about the future of the human race. Like, I'm not even trying to speculate here. I'm just trying to be logical, okay? Everybody's going to be afraid. They're going to wonder what's going on. I, I go in depth into about about this in episode twelve. Everybody's scared. Nobody knows what happened. Nobody knows what's coming next. And then, in the midst of all this chaos, this man arrives who seems to have all the answers. He knows how to reunite the world, and unite the religions of the world, and make a new world order that could endure this crisis. He promises security financially. He makes promises about repopulation. He has an explanation for why millions of people vanished. And remember, the deception is going to run rampant during this time. So his answers, they they don't have to make long-term sense. They just really need to be comforting enough to believe. And if so, the world will follow after him. That's his crown. That's the crown it's talking about here in Revelation 6. Now, it's not going to be all of the world. Okay, there's going to be some of those people who figure out what's going on. There's going to be people who get saved early on in that time period. Um, So they won't want to follow after the Antichrist. And the Bible even says there's going to be some nations who rebel against him. I think Egypt is mentioned specifically as one who rebels against him. And presumably there will be some others. But they're not going to be successful because the Bible says this seven-year period, this is the devil's chance to reign. This is the Antichrist's seven years. So nobody will successfully overthrow him until Jesus comes back at the end of the tribulation. Anybody who tries to get in his way, they're going to be put down. 
it says he will trample everyone, even the saints, okay? He'll go out conquering and to conquer. He is Satan's tool against the world. But he's also a judgment of God on the planet for that time. He's the first in a series of many calamities in the book of Revelation. He's the first seal judgment, the first horseman of the apocalypse. We'll close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and some personal application of this chapter. Uh, First, let me just ask, do you like fake news? Well, if not, you definitely do not want to check out my other podcast. It's called Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. And on that weekly show, we look back at uh, the past week of news stories through kind of a meta narrative of how the media covered those stories. And so it's a lot of fun. It's, It's more focused on current events. So if you don't like fake news, then you definitely don't want to come listen to it. But if you like laughing at fake news, then come join the fun. We have new episodes of that one each Friday. And if you have a question on something in this chapter, leave a comment or shoot us an email. That email is crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. So next time on this podcast, we're going to revisit Ezekiel. We're going to start into a massive vision that Ezekiel has in chapters 8 through 11 of that book. And then in episode 28, we'll be in Revelation 6 again, and we're going to talk about the second horseman of the apocalypse. Now, I want to mention one last thing to you today uh, before we go. We're probably not going to know who the Antichrist is. If you're a Christian, then hopefully, hopefully then like me, your plan is to go in the rapture, and you probably aren't going to be around to point the finger, to point a finger at the figure whenever he shows up. Now, I know a lot of people speculate on these matters. Like, I think just about every single famous world leader, they get these accusations of being a secret antichrist. And uh, there's certain things that can kind of narrow it down. Okay, first of all, I think the Bible's clear it will be a man. So don't try to tell me it's Hillary Clinton. <laughs> I know someone who constantly tries to tell me that it's Kamala Harris that is the uh, the Antichrist. And it's it's not, okay? The Antichrist is clearly, specifically male in the scriptures. Now, as far as his nationality, it's kind of vague. Um, some people think he's going to be a Jewish Antichrist. Others think a Muslim Antichrist. And here's what we kind of know according to the Bible. According to Daniel, the Antichrist is going to be the same race of people who destroyed the temple back in 70 AD. But to even say that, that's still somewhat vague. So it was the Romans who destroyed it, but also they hired the local Arabic people to do it. And um, the the Romans and the Arabs, they owned a lot of real estate on the planet at that point. So that doesn't really narrow it down a whole lot. I mean, and when, we say, when I say the Romans, I don't mean specifically people from Italy. Um, it could, it, honestly, it could translate to just about anybody from Europe. So... Or, or anyone who descended from someone from Europe. So anyway, it doesn't really narrow it down at all. Uh, he could come from just about anywhere. I would imagine that as Americans, I don't think the Antichrist is going to come from America. I don't think he could be an American president. But I would imagine that as Americans, like if the Antichrist were alive today, if someone were even to come and tell you what his name was, we probably wouldn't even recognize it. Okay? I'm just saying that so that I don't think we need to always try to figure out who it's going to be. 
I don't think we would even recognize this name if someone told it to us. Do you? Here, here's why. Let me just throw out a few names to you. Do you know the name Abdullah Shahid or Antonio Guterres or Ursula von der Leyen? Do you know who any of those people are? Okay, Abdullah Shahid, he's the president of the United Nations General Assembly. Antonio Guterres is the Secretary General of the United Nations. Ursula von der Leyen, she's the head of the European Union. So those names I just threw out, those are just some of the, the most powerful people in the entire world. I would say most of us have never even heard of them. Like, I don't even know how to properly pronounce their names. <laughs> you know, as Americans, we just kind of pay attention to what interests us or, or honestly what the media tells us to pay attention to. And we don't keep up with a whole lot of politics on the world scene. And um, and by the way, don't feel too bad about not knowing who the Antichrist is, because I would also say this, even the devil doesn't know who the Antichrist is. Did you know that? Because think about it. No man knows the day or the hour that Christ is going to return. Only God knows that. Only God has this timetable all planned out. Like the angels don't even know. People don't know. Even the devil doesn't know. So the devil doesn't just have like one guy picked out as his antichrist and that he's been preparing this guy for decades. The devil will just have to pick someone to fill that role whenever the time comes. So history is full of antichrist type of figures, um, like Antiochus Epiphanes from ancient Syria. I think a more familiar example would be Adolf Hitler. Uh, he believed himself to literally be the Antichrist. Like, he hoped it was true that he was the Antichrist. So, I kind of think if the rapture had happened back in the 1930s, perhaps Hitler was the man that God, or that Satan had prepared to be the Antichrist for that generation. If it had happened back then, I think Satan would have had to pick Hitler to be his Antichrist. Here's a quote from a book called Hitler's Cross. This is by Dr. Erwin Lutzer. It says, Hitler offered himself as a messiah with a divine mission to save Germany. On one occasion, he displayed the whip he, he often carried to demonstrate that in driving out the Jews, I remind myself of Jesus in the temple. He declared, just like Christ, I have a duty to my own people. He even boasted that just as Christ's birth had changed the calendar, so his victory over the Jews would be the beginning of a new age. What Christ began, he said, I will complete. So I actually think that Hitler, if the if the rapture had happened, you know, about 100 years ago, Hitler might have been the guy who was primed and ready to take control of the world back then. And um, he also just became so powerful, he uh, he actually kind of tried to, to implement what, what is really Satan's grand plan. As I said before, that the Antichrist, or Satan, he wants to wipe out all the Jewish people so he can prevent Jesus from coming back again. If he can stop them from turning back to God, from becoming Christian— from accepting Jesus as the Messiah, then based on prophecy, he could prevent Christ's return. So obviously, I don't think he's ever going to be successful in that, but that's his game plan. That's why he tried to use Hitler to wipe out the Jewish people and why he'll use the eventual Antichrist to do that later. So back then, I think it could have been Hitler. If it, if it were to happen today, I have no idea who would become the Antichrist. A lot of people have pointed out how this President Zelensky over in Ukraine how he's just skyrocketed to acclaim around the world. And I'm not claiming he's the Antichrist, okay? I just want to point out something about that. About how quickly someone can explode in fame. Like just a few months ago, 
I mean, he was a charismatic, a likable politician, uh, but also very corrupt, like most people on this side of the planet. We never really thought twice about him. We just kind of wrote off Ukraine. It was a corrupt country. But that was just a few months ago. Today, he's arguably the most popular leader in the whole world. Someone who was barely familiar to most Americans six months ago, today he's, I would say, the most popular leader in the world. That's how fast things can change. So the Antichrist, I'm just saying, he could spread up out of anywhere, and we would just have no idea, because we don't really watch for that a lot of time. <laughs> um, the world is a big place, so he could come out of out of anywhere. And I don't even want to be here to find out. I would ra- I'd rather find out who it is from a front row seat up in heaven. And honestly, once you're up in heaven, I think you kind of see how insignificant the identity of the Antichrist even is, like as a whatever his name is, you know, we think about that a lot. It's not going to matter once we're up in heaven. We're thinking about eternity by the time we get up there. So a a seven-year leader of the world, it doesn't even mean that much in light of eternity. Like after seven years, he's on the lake of fire. You never hear from him again. Uh, As Jesus even said, what good is it to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? And that that statement is going to be, I think, more literally true for the Antichrist than it was for anybody who ever existed. That he's literally going to be handed the world. His star is going to burn brightly for seven years. And then he's going to burn in a different way for all of eternity. Like, I'm not trying to be morbid there with that turn of phrase. But I just want to point out the Bible is so clear on this. Like, the Bible goes to great lengths to be as clear as possible about the torment of hell and that there's nothing you could gain in this world that could make it worth going there. It surprises me sometimes how some people say the Bible, they call it vague or they call it unclear about the reality of hell. And whenever I hear people say that, I'm like, you are in, (laughs) they're either in denial or they're just very deceived because the Bible, the Bible is as clear as it possibly can be about hell and the lake of fire and how they last forever. So here's what I'd say to you today, um, to take the word of Jesus seriously. That it would be, it, it would not be worth gaining the whole world to lose your soul. Make sure you have a better plan than that. Make sure you have a better plan than what the Antichrist has. Make sure you know today where you would go if you died. Or, or better yet, just make some plans to never even have to worry about who the Antichrist is. To instead go to heaven in the rapture. So that's my plan. Plan A is the rapture. Plan B is is dying and going to heaven. So either way, I know I would be fine in the end. Don't try a plan C where you just kind of do what you want for right now. And, you know, if a rapture happens, you'll just get saved during the tribulation. I'm just going to tell you, don't make that your backup plan. Because those are not going to be fun times. It's not going to be an exciting apocalypse like, like you see in the movies where people are fighting off zombies or dodging nuclear bombs, living off the grid. In a real apocalypse you'll probably suffer and die. And you don't need to. So make sure you're ready for eternity if you had to enter it today. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that if you choose to wear Crocs around my wife, I can't do anything for you.